This is Felix Bonneau. While everyone is housebound here for the next unknown period of time, I am going to post, hopefully daily, maybe not quite every day, um, chapters from books that I like about local history. I'm going to start off reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, published in 1951 and written by Murray Morgan. And um, we'll read the opening, I guess the preface today, which will take about 15 minutes or so. And then for the next episode, I'll read the first chapter, or maybe part of it, depending how long it takes. I'll try and do 15 or 20 minutes at a time, and I'll try to post every day around the same time. Again, this book is called Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle by Murray Morgan, one of the best books ever written about Seattle history and just essential for understanding uh, the city the way it is now, the way it was 50 years ago, the way it was 100 years ago, the way it was 150 years ago. Published in 1951 by the Viking Press in New York. This book is for Howard and Judith Daniel, it says. And this opening section is called One Man's Seattle. The hills are so steep in downtown Seattle that some of the sidewalks have cleats. They used to be steeper. Less than 50 years ago, Seattle seemed to have reached the physical limit of its growth. It had climbed the hills as far as a town could go. The streets were so steep that members of the Seattle Symphony, who had to climb three blocks to reach their practice hall from the place where they stored their instruments, arrived winded and sometimes rehearsals were over before all the horn players caught their breath. The musicians rigged a pulley to carry the instruments uphill so that strangers in town were sometimes startled to have a cello or a tuba swoop past them on the street. The rest of Seattle's residents couldn't solve their problems with pulleys, and they called in engineers to take the tops off the worst of the hills. By washing nearly as much dirt from the downtown hills as was moved during the digging of the Panama Canal, the engineers made it possible for a modern metropolis to be built on the half-drowned mountain that lies between Puget Sound and Lake Washington. Seattle has continued to spread out over the hills, and the hills are still steep. If, after making the ascent from 2nd Avenue to 5th Avenue, he gasps some depreciation of hills in general, and say Madison Street in particular, he is unlikely to receive sympathy from a resident. Oh, they aren't bad, a Seattleite will say about his hills. Or else, sure they're steep, but look at the view. Since most of the city clings to the sides of the hills that rise from lake and bay and river, there's always a view. Lake Washington is to the east at Seattle's back door. It makes a good backyard. It is a long and lovely lake, still marked with the wilderness, though highways encircle it, and a floating bridge of concrete spans it. The racing shells of the University of Washington practice on it, and estates and mills and small homes and a naval air station stand on the shore. A mountain lake at sea level, a visitor called it 60 years ago, when most of the shore was still outside the city limits. It still feels like a mountain lake. The real mountains are 30 miles farther east. The Cascades run north and south across the state of Washington, and the wet winds from the Pacific drop their moisture as they sweep over the mile-high barrier, so that the western slope is dark with evergreens for half the year, and for the other half, deep with snow. The Cascades shut Seattle off from the eastern part of the state, psychologically as well as physically. Seattleites don't think in the same terms as the people who live across the mountains, where the climate is dry and the trees shed their leaves, and wealth is fruit and wheat. Seattle thinks in terms of lumber and deep water. Puget Sound is the town's front yard. The first settlers came there in canoes. The business district faces west by south. From the office buildings that have grown where the Douglas Fir and Western Cedar stood as tall as skyscrapers, businessmen look westward across the water at another mountain range, the Olympics, wilder and wetter than the Cascades. The last wilderness, some call them, a timbered world to be conquered and cut. 
From their downtown offices, executives can watch the streamlined ferries that carry commuters to and from the Olympic Peninsula and the islands of the Sound. But they forget the ferries when a freighter glides into Elliott Bay and nudges one of the piers. The freighter reminds them that beyond the mountains is the Pacific, and beyond the Pacific is a continent to trade with and grow rich on. The first settlers called the town New York Alki, meaning in Indian jargon, New York by and by. And Seattle still hopes to be for Asia what the port of New York is for Europe. Sometimes war or politics shuts off that continent, but there is always Alaska. The half million people in Seattle tend to look on Alaska as their very own. We're the only city in the world that owns a territory, a booster once remarked. And the 128,643 Alaskans agree, though they are not happy about it. Seattle stores display subarctic clothing, though Puget Sound winters are usually mild. Seattle curio shops feature totem poles, though no Puget Sound Indian ever carved one. Seattle radio stations carry programs, especially for Alaska, though Seattle is, is as far from the territory as New York is from Hudson Bay. At the foot of the hills between the office buildings and the bay lies a narrow strip of low land. Here on the waterfront, Seattle's history and Seattle's future meet and merge. To know Seattle, one must know its waterfront. It is a good waterfront, not as busy as New York's, not as self-consciously colorful as San Francisco's, not as exotic as New Orleans, but a good, honest, working waterfront with big gray warehouses and trim fishing boats and docks that smell of creosote, and seagulls and tugs and seafood restaurants and beer joints and fish stores a waterfront where you can hear foreign languages and buy shrunken heads and genuine stuffed mermaids, where you can watch the seamen following the streetwalkers and the shore patrol following the sailors, where you can stand at an open-air bar and drink clam nectar or sit on a deadhead and watch the water or go to an aquarium and look at an octopus. The trucks and trains rattle past behind you, but there are sea sounds too. The cries of the gulls, the creak of the lines as the moored ships gently move, the slap-slap of small waves against the seawalls, the splash of a leaping salmon. These have not changed since the day nearly a hundred years ago, when a young physician and poet named Harry Smith got thoroughly lost while walking the three miles from his cabin on the cove that now bears his name to Doc Maynard's general store, the Seattle Exchange, which was located on the lowland where the hills flatten out and run into the tide flats near the mouth of the Duwamish River, an area then called the Sag. At low tide, it was possible to walk along the beach from the cove to the sag, but when the tide came in, the water lapped against the clay bluffs, and it was necessary to climb the hill and walk through the forest. The trees grew to the edge of the bluff, a thick stand of giant evergreens rising out of a tangle of underbrush, ferns and wild rose bushes and salal and Oregon grape. From a few yards back in the woods, it was impossible to see the water. In the deep forest, even the sun was hidden from sight. So it was that young Dr. Smith, walking south through the woods that covered the hill now called Queen Anne, lost his way and instead of coming out at the sag, discovered a cabin in a clearing by the water, where he was sure no cabin or clearing or water should be, a cabin that proved upon investigation to be his own. It would be difficult to get lost between Smith Cove and the Skid Road today. From the hill, logged by the pioneers and lowered by the engineers, the city spreads out before you, Seattle is located on the eastern shore of Puget Sound on Elliott Bay. From the top of Queen Anne, the highest of all the Seattle hills, you look down on the harbor. Piers slant out into the bay from Smith Cove to the mouth of the Duwamish River. The eastern shoreline is jagged as a saw blade. Beyond the Duwamish, the land sweeps back to the northwest. Elliott Bay, which lies within this horseshoe curve, opens onto the sound, and across the sound you see the islands. Vashon, which was named by Vancouver for a British naval captain, and Bainbridge, named for the captain of Old Ironsides. 
Beyond the islands lie the Olympic Mountains. Looking to the east, you see three lakes. The first, Lake Union, is an industrial lagoon bordered by shipyards, boatworks, and the city gas plant. Hundreds of houseboats, built on floats of cedar logs, are moored to the bank, some of them clammy one-room shacks, others with as many as six rooms, radiant heat, and specially designed lightweight fireplaces. Green Lake, the city's favorite swimming hole, is surrounded by a small park, and the third is the long, lovely stretch of Lake Washington. A canal connects Lake Washington and Lake Union with the Sound. The second-largest locks in the world raise ships from salt to fresh water. The skyscrapers of the business district rise from the western slope of the narrow waste of land that separates Elliott Bay from Lake Washington. Dirt sluiced from the hills has covered the clam beaches along the salt water. Even at high tide, you can follow the waterfront all the way from the Cove to South First and Washington Streets, where Doc Maynard's store once stood. As you walk south along Alaskan Way, the city on your left, the water on your right, you pass over the anchorage where in the old days the brigs and the clippers and the lumber schooners dropped their hooks and waited their turn to load lumber at the docks. The beaver anchored here too, the first steamer on the coast, flagship of the Hudson's Bay Company fleet. And the Major Tompkins, which was wrecked, the Traveler, which sprang a leak and sank, the Ferry, which exploded, and the Water Lily, which was auctioned off as junk. And there were the great paddle wheelers like the Eliza Anderson, which for years served as a highway and newspaper and post office to the people of the Sound. You can still see the paddle wheelers here. The tan-colored stern wheeler Skagit Chief ties up from time to time at Pier 66, and sometimes the Skookum Chief comes down from the Upper Sound. On rare occasions, a sailing vessel... A veritable white winger enters the harbor. But most of the vessels are American freighters or Scandinavian cargo passenger ships, sharp, proud, and fresh-painted, so large that when you lean against the waterfront rail to admire them, you have to look up to see the anchors at their bows and to read their names. On the bluff to your left are the public market, where the descendants of the Indians who once possessed the bay now sell vegetables, the neon-marked headquarters of the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, where the lieutenants of Harry Bridges plan their unending war with Dave Beck, the tall white building named Dexter Horton in honor of a sawmill hand who became the town's first banker, and the block-long red brick building that James Coleman built after the tide and the engineers had covered with dirt the beached clipper bark he used as a home. Most impressive of all is the 42-story Smith Tower, named for the typewriter, not the pioneer poet, which towers over the site of the main battleground in Seattle's two-day Indian War. This is the oldest Seattle. Standing by the Alaska Pier, you look upon a street that climbs straight over the hill toward Lake Washington. You walk up it, and two short blocks from the waterfront come to First Avenue, which was called Front Street in the days when it ran along the bluff above the beach. Here stood the mill that, in the 50s, meant Seattle was really a town, not just a hope. And here, in the doldrum era of the 70s, Val Wildman sold Seattle's first stein of nickel beer. This is Yesler Way. Once it was called Mill Street, and before that it was simply the Skid Road, the route along which the ox team skidded logs to Yesler's Mill in the Sag. It is a dividing line. A hundred years ago it divided the land claimed by Doc Maynard from that claimed by Carson Dobbins Boren. It marked the center of the narrow strip of land that Boren and Maynard gave to Henry Yesler so that he could build his mill where he wanted to. Fifty years ago Yesler Way was the deadline, the northern limit of what Seattleites called our great restricted district. Body houses and low theaters were expected to stay south of the line. Today, Yesler Way is still a dividing line of sorts, 
To your left as you climb the steep street are the big new buildings, symbols of Seattle's dominance over a state and a territory and its dreams of controlling the trade of a distant continent. To your right in the red brick buildings, untopped by neon, along the unswept sidewalks where the rejected men stand and stare, are the symbols of the past, the monuments to men who dream the wrong dreams or, like Doc Maynard, the right dreams too soon. This region south of Yesler has been known by many names. For a time it was called Maynard Town, after Doc Maynard. Later, when Yesler's mill had been running long enough for its debris to fill the tidal inlets, the area was known simply as Down on the Sawdust. After its character became established during the 70s, it was called variously the Lava Beds, the Tenderloin, Whitechapel, and the Great Restricted District. For a while, it was referred to as Wappyville, in honor of a chief of police who distinguished himself by the amount of graft he collected there. But the first name, the functional name, has outlasted all the others. When the pioneers rolled logs by hand down to the waterfront, when the ox teams plodded over the hill dragging logs for Yesler's steam mill, this was the Skid Road, and it is the Skid Road today. This district south of Yesler Way, this land below the deadline, has helped fix the word on the American language. The Skid Road, the place of dead dreams. Do you see here the things you see on other skid roads in America? Men sitting on curbs and sleeping in doorways, doors padlocked for non-payment of rent, condemned buildings, signs that read, beds, 20 cents, oatmeal, 5 cents, with sugar, 7 cents, with cream, 9 cents. Be saved by Sister Faye. A charge of 3 cents will be made for packages stored more than two days. Indians who want wine must show documents they are not wards of the government. The People's World is sold on the street corners, and secondhand nudist magazines are on sale in cigar stores. There are missions and taverns and wine shops and stores where you can buy a suit for $3.75. And there are things peculiar to Seattle, a totem pole, cafes with Indian names, a manifesto posted on the wall which recalls the days when this was a stronghold of the IWW and the one big union promised an eight-hour day. Fellow workers, unite for the four-hour day and the four-day week. No cut in pay. Once the people here did find a shortcut to riches from a red-brick hotel down the street, Swiftwater Bill Gates, the Dawson plunger, showered nuggets on the Seattleites who gathered in the streets below. Still earlier, Doc Maynard tried to get rich and instead brought wealth to others. Doc was the first of the dreamers along the skid road. He was Seattle's first booster, the man who was sure greatness could come. He owned a tract of land worth, city officials guess, $100 million. Wrapped in his dream of making Seattle grow, he gave it bit by bit to anyone whose presence might help the town expand. Seattle grew, but by the time it was big, Maynard was dead and the government had taken most of the property he left to his wife. He died poor, but he was a great man. This book is a story of Maynard and of the men like him, the ones who weren't quite respectable but helped build the great city of the Northwest. The formal history of Seattle has been written many times over, sometimes well. The sons and daughters of the men who moved north of the Skid Road have lovingly told the story of the folk who dreamed the right dreams at the appropriate times. This is the story of the others, of some who tried and failed and of some who achieved success without becoming respectable, of the life that centered on the mills and on the wharves. That is Seattle from the bottom up. In the next episode, we'll do 15 or 20 minutes of Chapter 1 of Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle by Murray Morgan. I'm Felix Bunnell.